And it wasn't until I found uh, swimming that I kind of latched on to something that was meaningful to me. I did show some kind of natural acumen in the pool at a very early age and had been on swim teams since I was like six years old. And around the time that I was like 10 or 11, I was kind of good. You know, I wasn't like amazing, but it was the one thing that where I actually kind of felt at home. And also, you know, when your head's underwater, it's kind of this calming, soothing, womb-like, you know, environment away from the playground. And I just gravitated more and more into that subculture until that really became, you know, my life throughout junior high school and high school. Welcome to The Common Threads. During each episode, we'll travel through time to explore the childhoods, influences, and habits of some of the world's leading athletes, industry experts, and entrepreneurs. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app, and visit ProKit, where we bring together the best interviews, podcasts, and articles in a new platform for athletes. I'm your host, David Swain. Here with Rich Roll, I stumbled into to podcast a few years ago, and yours was one of the one of the two that really stood out for me and embodied so much of of what has drawn me into health and reaching your potential, not just as an athlete, but as a person. And your story for me is very inspirational in the sense of, you know, you had the American dream, you had the Cornell and Stanford degrees, the high power job, and then the moments or moment of clarity of coming to meaning and understanding yourself and, and what actually mattered. And then from that becoming, you know, really elite endurance athlete and, and now someone who's really shaped, I think, a lot of how people think about wellness and health and, and really kind of the human experience. So it's, yeah, it's really, really great to be here and um, to get to know you better. Uh, well, I, uh, I appreciate the kind words. Yeah. Happy to talk to you. Uh, and it's exciting times, this podcast space. It is. So I like to start with a really hard question. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, I didn't eat anything for breakfast this morning. I think I've got some espresso right oh. here. Um, but this morning I woke up, had a cup of coffee, and got my daughter off to school, dropped her off, and then went for like an hour plus run and drank a bunch of water and came over here. So I experiment a little bit, not in a formal sense, but with intermittent fasting. Um, plenty of days, you know, I don't eat until like late afternoon, sometimes not until dinner, not every day. Uh, my training is going to start ramping up incrementally here. So uh, I don't know how... Uh, tenable, you know, that will be, uh, when the pressures, the physical pressures start to mount. But, um, I found that I can go an entire day, you know, up until dinner time without eating and feel just fine. All right. We're going to get more to, to that, but before we do in the last couple of weeks, even, um, the number of people who have answered with intermittent fasting, uh -huh. um, has been really interesting. Even, you know, I was just on a ski trip and a you know, doctor from UCSF, that was his answer. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to unpack that. So we'll get to that. But why don't we start with just for people who don't know you, Rich is a kid, is a teenager, you know, fast forward to now, like talk just quickly through kind of your, sure. your story. So I grew up originally from Michigan, but really grew up in, in Washington, D.C., in the suburbs Maryland, Bethesda. Grew up uh, middle class, two parents that took care of all my needs. They're still married. And I think in retrospect, kind of looking back at that time, I was a very kind of awkward, insecure kid uh, in recovery. The parlance is something like this idea that everyone else had the rule book for life. And I was kind of stumbling around in the dark, I think is a pretty accurate description of how I felt. And had a lot of difficulty trying to make friends and be social. Uh, I wasn't by any indication athletically gifted. You know, I was getting bullied on the playground and I was the last kid picked for whatever ball sport happened to be going on. I had an 
eye patch. I have a weak wandering eye that I still have. So I wore a patch in elementary school over one eye. I had the headgear orthodontia, you know, it's not a vision for you. And I struggled. I think I was a very, I am still a very sensitive person. And it wasn't until I found uh, swimming that I kind of latched onto something that was meaningful to me. I did show some kind of natural acumen in the pool at a very early age and had been on swim teams since I was like six years old. And around the time that I was like 10 or 11, I was kind of good. You know, I wasn't like amazing, but it was the one thing that where I actually kind of felt at home. And also, you know, when your head's underwater, it's kind of this calming, soothing, womb-like, you know, environment away from the playground. And I just gravitated more and more into that subculture until that really became, you know, my life throughout junior high school and high school. And I remember in your book talking about your mom kind of letting you go to the bottom and coming back up and that being the... In high school, it sounds like you really went to the, and just from reading your story, you know, 4.45 a.m. wake-ups. Yeah, full-on. Just every full on. every chance you could get, you were I started, at the pool. I started taking it seriously around 15, and that's yeah. when I started really hitting the double workouts and the, you know, the alarm clock going off at 4.44 in the morning, 5.15 to 7 o'clock in the pool, school, and then some practice for two hours after school every day. Uh, I was part of a club team in my area that was kind of known for, you know, producing national and international caliber swimmers. Uh, and when I was 15 and joined that club, I was like the worst in the group. But what I figured out pretty early on was that if I was willing to put in the work and kind of double time it, uh, that I could make up that talent deficit gap. And so I quickly distinguished myself as a workhorse. Like I was the guy who was willing to do the kind of stuff no one else wanted to do. Swim the events no one wanted to swim, like the 200 fly. The the herd is thinner there, easier to distinguish yourself. And then throw down crazy, painful sets that no one wanted to do. And by repeatedly showing up for that kind of, you know, workhorse regimen, um, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was one of the you know better swimmers in the area and getting recruited at colleges and all the like. And, and that discipline and focus and diligence spilled over into my academic life. You know, I wasn't a gifted student. And when I was in third and fourth grade, I was essentially failing out, but really learned how to learn and was able to approach my academics with the same rigor that I approached my athletics in the pool. So uh, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was a pretty good student, like near the top of my class in my high school. And then you fast forward, it sounds like you're 39 years old, reached by a lot of measures, um, some real success. Yeah, I mean, I've had and, yeah. lots of ups and downs, you know, protracted battle with alcohol, you know, that kind of short-circuited my swimming career in college and took me to some pretty dark places throughout my 20s, got sober at 31. And in the wake of, you know, discovering sobriety and spending 100 days in a rehab in Oregon and, you know, really getting the wind knocked out of me and the, you know, carpet pulled out from underneath me, realized that I had become a pretty broken individual. I had burned all my bridges and, you know, really had become a very irresponsible, unreliable, unpredictable human being who who couldn't be trusted in any way, shape, or form. So when I got sober, I became very intent on, on repairing all of that wreckage because, as you kind of mentioned earlier, when I graduated from high school, like, I was a bit of a golden boy. Like I was right. this great swimmer and I got into these amazing colleges and like the world was just, you know, at my feet. And I really kind of blew it. You know, I just destroyed a lot of those opportunities. And I had a tremendous amount of shame and guilt over that. Um, And I really felt like I needed to prove to the world and to myself that I could become that person again. And that was really the the engine, like the gestalt that was pushing me forward. It had nothing to do with what I felt in my higher self was what I should be spending my time doing. It was really like, I'm going to show everybody, you know, that I can be that person again. And so I pursued that for a decade. And so by the time, yeah, I was 39, I had achieved some success, but it was really like me trying to jam this square peg into a round hole and prove that I could be this lawyer. There was nothing about being a corporate lawyer that I liked or that I gravitated towards. 
It was just, this is what you're supposed to do. Somebody of my education and, you know, my, you know, academic background, this is the responsible, secure, safe thing to do. And I grew up in an environment where that's what you pursue. It's not about like, hey, you know, follow your heart. It was about like, be this person in our culture. And so at 39, I checked all those boxes. I had a nice car. You know, I had this, you know, nice resume. I've met my wife. From the outside looking in, it all looked pretty great. But on the inside, I was like this decaying corpse. I was really dying because I was living at odds with really the person that I was meant to be. So I was sort of having this existential crisis that I wasn't even consciously aware was happening. And that really collided with the health scare because I hadn't been taking care of myself during that decade. I was just a workaholic and just fast food addict, couch potato. Uh, despite having been this swimmer in college, I you know, wasn't working out or doing anything like that. I was just in the law firm eating Chinese takeout and hitting Jack in the Box on the way home or Taco Bell or what have you. And I put on 50 pounds. And so these two kind of crises collided with each other on a staircase uh, late one night when I was walking up to go to my bedroom and had to pause halfway up the, a simple flight of stairs, like winded, out of breath, and just this, you know, dawning epiphany, like, wow, like I, I would still look in the mirror and think that I was this Stanford swimmer, even though I didn't look anything like that, like denial works like that. And that moment just really snapped my denial and, and made me realize like I'm living in an unsustainable way. I can't keep living like this anymore. I need to make some changes. And most importantly, like I'm willing to make those changes. And I had a very strong, profound sense that this was a special moment. Like the universe was <laughs> opening itself yeah. up saying, come over here and your life will change. Like I just remember that being very visceral. And I think the reason I was able to kind of recognize that and take that moment seriously is because it was very similar to the day that I decided like, I'm going to get sober and I'm going to go to this rehab. And, you know, that little, those little kind of brief windows of opportunity where you're visited with that kind of willingness, if you're able to grab onto it and take a simple action, your life can change so dramatically. And my life had changed so dramatically by going to that rehab and getting right. sober. Had I just said, I'll do it tomorrow, you know, who knows whether I ever would have made it there, what my life would look like today. So that's kind of the, that was going on in the background of my consciousness when I was having this staircase episode. And so this is just like that other day, like I need to do something. And so that was really the beginning of trying to, you know, uh, deconstruct the life that I was living and, and, and build a new one. And then from there to becoming, not only just becoming a swimmer again, but becoming, you know, out there doing, I had never even heard of, I've interviewed a lot of really interesting people in the space, but the Epic Five. Uh -huh. <laughs> so it's five yeah. Ironmans in seven days is what you did? Or yeah, so, or? so I'd never heard of any of these yeah. things either. <laughs> like I thought, you know, I, I changed my relationship with food. I adopted yeah. a plant-based diet. I suddenly had this resurgence in vitality and yeah. energy levels. And, and I almost had to start working out again because I, I was like, vi my body was vibrating. Like I, my wife was like, go outside. You're driving me crazy. Yeah. So I started running and swimming and doing things I hadn't done in a very long time. My wife bought me a bike for my birthday, but I, I had no designs on, mm -hmm. on returning to becoming a competitive athlete. It was really just this process of reconnecting with myself physically and realizing that that was something that brought me a lot of joy. You know, it reminded me of what it was like to be a kid and get dropped off at the pool in the summertime and spend the whole day there. Like it was very primal and, and basic and simple. And then I thought, well, maybe it would be fun to challenge myself. And I thought, well, I'll do an Ironman. That's like a bucket list, 40-year-old guy thing to do. And I stumbled across this article about this race called Ultraman. And this guy, David Goggins, who had just raced this race like a month after running this race called Badwater. And, and it was my introduction to the world of ultra endurance. I'd never heard of David Goggins. I'd never heard of Ultraman, which is this double Ironman race. I didn't know that human beings were capable of doing anything right. longer than an Ironman. And I just was captivated by this subculture and i had this powerful kind of knowing that somehow i was going to find myself part of that community and you know it took a while it wasn't like overnight but in 2008 i raced this race called ultraman it's a double ironman distance race that circumnavigates the big island of hawaii 
I did okay. I went back the next year and led the race for the first day, crashed my bike, still ended up six. It's like a whole long story, but was able to distinguish myself in that ultra endurance community as this middle-aged 43-year-old lawyer, which made people kind of go, wait, who is this guy? And like, he's a lawyer and he doesn't eat animal products. Like, how does that work? And the media was sort of interested in that story and, and the Epic Five, which I did in 2010, is really the brainchild of this guy called Jason Lester, who was a training partner and friend of mine from my experience at Ultraman, who came up with this idea of trying to do this thing that no one had ever done before, which was to do an Ironman on each of the five Hawaiian islands day after day after day, five Ironmans, five Hawaiian islands in five days. And in 2010, we set out to do it. Uh, we ran into all kinds of crazy logistical obstacles because it was just us and like a couple volunteers. And it was just insane trying to finish an Ironman before the last flight would leave the island to get to the next island and get, you know, we're getting like two hours of sleep. Our bikes were bright. It was bananas. We got it done in like six and a half days. And it was this incredible, extraordinary experience. And now that's a thing that happens every year. It's become, you know, a race where people can sign up and do it. And in the year since Jason and I initiated that, people complete it every year. They do it in five days. A couple of women have done it in five days. And it's really cool to like see that legacy of this idea that Jason had. So the the road to the plant-based diet, I think there's two parts to this is this all happened. And I think a lot of people search for of like the moment where you start to realize your potential to become who you actually see in the mirror, who you want to see in the mirror. And, you know, now you've, you've been interviewing for your podcast and just, you've probably read every book, interviewed the top people and the mind, body, spirit spectrum. I'm curious how your point of views have evolved over you know, this kind of, is it like a 10 year yeah, roughly been, period? It's been about 10, it's really been 10 years since I did Ultraman. I mean, this journey has been going on for about 12 years. Right. And it's a constant evolution. Yeah. You know, I think if I can say anything, it's that, you know, we're here to grow. And the minute you put a cap on that and think that you're done, it's over, you know? And, and one thing I see a lot is, especially in the kind of diet and wellness space. I'll go and I'll speak at a VegFest or, you know, one of these kind of health organizations and I'll see people who, whose lives like myself have been dramatically improved, impacted by changing their relationship with food. But there's a tendency to then get stuck. And then it's just about like the kale, you know, the whole conversation is the kale and what kind of kale. And it's like, I changed my relationship with food and restored my vitality so I could go out into the world and become a more fully integrated human being, a more fully expressed human being to continue to grow and learn and evolve. And, you know, I wrote this book in 2012, Finding Ultra. It was my story. And then I started the podcast some months after that book came out. And my whole goal with it was to continue this evolutionary process, to continue to grow. So I'm constantly having people on who are introducing me to ideas and concepts and you know ways of living that are new to me so that I can put that pressure on myself or challenge myself and my worldview to continue to evolve. And I think, you know, that's if anything, like I said, that's what we're here to do. And and hopefully, you know, I can be a catalyst or a conduit for so many people out in the world who don't have access to these people or are not surrounded by, you know, the like-minded individuals that I get to have on the podcast to create and cultivate some community to allow people to understand and connect with this idea that life is an evolution and that we all are sort of treading on top of reservoirs of untapped potential that we're not even consciously realizing that we can tap into and express more fully in our lives. Yeah. You just said it, that, one of the things about anytime you start talking about specifics within health, there's so many loaded conversations. Mm -hmm. It's like very the, emotional. The, nutri the yeah. nutrition battles, one side versus the other. Um, it's been really interesting for me listening to your show where you've got all sides covered. You clearly have a point of view in the sense of you are plant-based, mm -hmm. 
but you're able to do the interviews with that learning mindset without judgment, which I think is like in this category in general is I think really hard for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I guess that's one of the, like, where have your kind of core beliefs been pushed or shifted, right? Like you came into a plant-based, um, right. I'm sure you found a lot of techniques, mm-hmm. things over the years. Like, it's just interesting to me, like where the push and pull has been for you as a person of like where you've had to stretch yourself. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I certainly have a point of view yeah. and I have a, a certain set of experiences that inform, you know, how I make decisions about how to live. But I try to be as open-minded in my interviews as possible and to be empathetic. And these are skills and tools that I've learned in recovery. Like when you mm-hmm. spend a lot of time in 12-step meetings, you you hear people's stories and you hear their pain, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. And what I've learned through that experience of thousands of hours of hearing other people's stories, sharing my own story, which continues to inform me about what it is and who I am, uh, is that you do develop this capacity for empathy. And I've come to realize and understand that that how somebody else chooses to live their life is, is really none of my business. It's not for me to judge or evaluate. I have a point of view. I live a certain way. It's not my job to try to get you to do it the way that I do it. I share my experience. I never tell people what to do. And so when I have guests on my show, you know, I'm not trying to be controversial. So you know, I'll, I'll generally just bring on people that are pretty similar to me or have some similar shared experience or perspectives. Like I don't bring people on so I can argue with them. Like that's not, that's not my thing, but there's a lot of ways in which I've grown. I mean, when I adopted a plant-based diet, it was purely for health concerns, personal health concerns. I wanted to feel better. I didn't want to die of a heart attack. I didn't want to be fat. You know, I had aesthetic concerns. Um, And that was really it. I didn't do it to save the animals. I wasn't concerned about the environment. And I still remember the first time that I had an animal rights activist on my podcast, Gene Bauer, who runs Farm Sanctuary. And I was like nervous because I was like, well, the audience, what if they're not animal? You know, it's like, and and it wasn't my thing. So I was like, please help me understand like how you came to be passionate about that. And Gene has gone on to become a, a good friend of mine. And I've learned so much about the billions of animals that we horribly mistreat that suffer terribly to end up on our plates. And I think there's, you know, regardless of your dietary proclivities, I think we can all agree that factory farming is not a great thing and that we could do a much better job of humanely treating the animals with whom we share this planet with. And that's something I probably couldn't have said in 2012 out loud, the environmental concerns that has probably trumped the health perspective in terms of how we allocate resources for the preservation of the planet. That's become, you know, a paramount issue of concern for me that I talk about all the time on the podcast. And I try to have guests on who know more about that than I do. Um, So I think those would probably be the two most obvious, like kind of growth Mm. curves in my evolution. But, you know, it's endless. Every guest that comes on the show, I learn something from in some respect or another, as I'm sure you have as well with what you do. Yeah. For people who are just like evaluating where their nutrition and diet and food choices go from here, what are the biggest benefits that you've seen from plant-based or Mm -hmm. I guess how you think about food and the role it plays in, you know, for athletes listening to the show and training and racing recovery, there's so much to read. And to your point, this is like almost endless learning that it can get pretty confusing. Yeah. Um, how have you kind of simplified the way There's you think always, about it? There's always, you know, studies you can cherry pick to, right. to, you know, fortify whatever perspective you have on this. And, yeah. you know, look, I'm well aware of how siloed we get when it comes to, you know, the diet wars that you see on Twitter, whether yeah. you're a low carb person or, you know, you've adopted the carnivore diet or you're like an animal rights vegan or a healthy, health focused plant-based person. Like there's a lot of arguing going on. I don't participate in any of that. I do my thing and I'm happy to talk about it if people ask me about it, but I'm not here to tell you what you should eat the way that I should. The reason that I've made these choices, I made them 12 years ago. It did revitalize my body. It continues to work to this day. And I made a commitment to myself to not be dogmatic about it, In other words, if I started to feel lousy or if I had terrible blood work or 
you know, something were to happen that I would need to be honest with myself and I would be open to a different perspective on how to eat. Decade plus into this, I still feel good. I'm 52. I'm training for stuff right now. My body's performing well. So I don't see any need to change what I'm doing. Yeah. And my experience has been that when you're eating plant foods close to their natural state and you eliminate the processed crap, which is the big thing, you know, getting rid of all the, whether, no matter what your diet is, like if you just eliminate processed foods, you're going to get yourself to the 10 yard line. In my case, uh, eating plant-based has allowed me to get my weight down to what it was when I was, you know, senior in high school and keep it there for 12 years uh, without much effort. I'm eating a very nutrient dense diet high in phytonutrients, micronutrients, minerals, vitamins, all the things that you need to function well. And it's also a very anti-inflammatory diet. You know, any athlete who's listening to this understands that food is fuel and you're eating for performance reasons. And as an athlete, people also are aware that you make your gains as an athlete, not during your workout, but in between your workouts. That's when the body is repairing itself. And if you can use fuel to expedite and perfect that reparative process to uh, allow those muscles to rebuild, to recover from the uh, you know stress induced by exercise, then the better off you're going to be. So in other words, if I can cut that recovery time in half or by a third, that means that I can train harder, I can train more frequently, and I'm going to recover more quickly. I'm less likely to get injured or to overtrain. So protracted out over the course of a season or a number of years, you're going to see tremendous gains. So it's not that, oh, eating plant-based is inherently going to make you a better athlete, but I think the very healthy nature of these foods that you're eating is putting your body in a position to regulate itself optimally to get your immune system doing exactly what it should be, you know, at a high rev rate uh, so that you can perform at your peak. And most people want to know about the protein thing. I, I, I don't have any issues building lean muscle mass and recovering in, in between my workouts. When If I go to the gym and want to get big, I can get big. Like I source all of my protein. When we're talking about protein, we're really talking about amino acids, the nine essential amino acids we can't get that our bodies can't synthesize on their own and we have to get from our food. It's just not a problem. You know, it's not a problem to meet those needs on a plant-based diet. What is kind of your go-to on recovery? Uh, lots of dark leafy greens, yeah. lots of smoothies that are dark leafy green based, spinach, kale, chard, lots of berries, blackberries and blueberries, very high in antioxidants, lots of fruit and vegetables. For protein, it's beans and lentils and nuts and seeds. But really the kind of general rule is eating these plant foods, foods close to their natural state. And, you know, the the more like you said, what did you eat for breakfast? Like if I was training her, I'd probably have a smoothie. And that smoothie would be, like I said, a base of dark leafy greens uh, then maybe some superfoods in there like spirulina and hemp seeds and ground flax seeds. I have four kids, so I never know what's going to be in the fridge. You know, so a lot of times it's just whatever we happen to have. But, you know, very high fiber and lots of fruits and vegetables. Uh, when you blend it down, it's like drinking a gigantic salad that's so large that you would never sit down and actually eat it. And then your body is given the nutrients it needs mm-hmm. to perform. That was actually my next question is, is kids. So you have four four mm-hmm. kids and I don't know, my experience with, I have two kids. Uh-huh. And we were really good with the kids diet until they were about five when they went to school and started getting invited to parties and after sports you're you know whatever someone brings that's where i think it got hard and it's as much as i know about it um it's still really hard yeah curious just what your perspective it's uh it's a very imperfect art and science you know we were fortunate in that our our two younger daughters went to a school where they were serving a plant-based lunch and there was no processed food so we were able to like dodge that that one bullet but you know it's not easy um i think for me the guiding principle is to and what's been effective with my wife and i with our kids is to use all aspects of food as almost a homeschooling experience. So take your kids to the grocery store or the farmer's market. And every time you decide to put something in your cart, or you're saying, we're not going to put that in our cart is an opportunity to explain why and get into the details of Mm -hmm. 
why this is a healthy food, why this isn't, why we're not choosing this, why we are choosing this and engage the kids on their level, like treat them as uh, sentient beings rather than talk down to them and say, no, you can't because I said so, like explain why. When you get home, have the kids help you put the foods away and teach your kids how to cook at a very young age. I think if you can instill in young children the skills in the kitchen that are required to prepare healthy dishes as early as is responsible to do so, what we found is that the kids then develop an emotional connection with the food. So the first recipe we taught our little boys when they were young was chia seed pudding, which is basically like a superfood dessert that tastes delicious like pudding, but it's actually nutritious and good for you and it's super easy to make. And so, of course, once they know how to make that, that's what they want to make. They want to show you that they can make it. There's like a self-esteem aspect to it. And I think the more you can do that, then you're creating this foundation upon which they can build their own relationship with food. And like yourself, you know, when the kids go to a friend's house or a birthday party or there's an athletic event, you can't control that environment. And what we've kind of done is stay, we stayed out of it. It's not like, hey, you can't have, I'm not going to tell my daughter she can't have cake or pizza at the birthday party because then you create something for them to rebel against and resistance. And you're also creating tension for her because you don't want your kid to be a social pariah. So this is a very loaded, difficult thing. So I'm like, if you want to eat cake, eat cake. It's fine. Then on the drive home, uh, a stomach ache. Okay, well, let's talk about that. I don't care whether my kid goes off the reservation at a birthday party. What I care about is what their overall general relationship with food looks like 10, 20 years down the line. So it's about instilling in them a foundation of knowledge upon which you can build healthy habits with the understanding that we're all human and nobody's perfect. But I think where parents make mistakes is when they create these hard and fast rules, because then you are setting the stage, creating the foundation for rebellion in those teenage years where they're like, screw you, man, I'm going to go to McDonald's and I'm going to show you. But if it's not emotionally charged, you're like, hey, you want to go to McDonald's? You go to McDonald's. Like, it's your life, you know, yeah. without any judgment. If you can take all of that loaded energy out of it, then there's nothing to rebel against. There's no energy charge to that. And that seems to be working well so far. I and mean, we saw two, my youngest is 11 and my oldest is 24. So we've kind of run the gamut with all of this. And like I said, we're not perfect. You know, it's not like yeah. we have it completely figured out. And I'm very sympathetic to the dilemma of parents who want to instill those healthy habits in their kids. But the final thing I would say is that you have got to walk your talk. You know, if you're telling your kids like, hey, knock it off with the Fruit Loops uh, and then you're doing it at midnight, you know, like, and you think you're getting away with it and your kid doesn't know, I promise you, (laughs) your kid knows exactly what you're doing and that duplicity ain't going to work. So you have to master it yourself before you can you know, be somebody with credibility (laughs) for your children. I'm just continuing for a minute on the kids and parenting side. I mean, similar to food is sports. And since we were kids and I'm younger than you, but the intense focus on selecting one sport Mm -hmm. by the time you're 10 years old or 12 years old and just this completely rigid mindset where kids are burning out. They used to burn out by college and now you burn out by high school. Uh-huh. It's interesting on the rebellion side with foods, you are the perfect student and athlete who didn't, you know, sounds like you didn't feel like you fit in, weren't at, in school, right? But mm-hmm. you did those two things exceptionally well. And then you got to college and there was some type of rebellion. Yeah, I would say more yeah. than rebellion. <laughs> How is how did that shape your perspective on the role of academics and sports for kids and letting kids find their own path? Because they clearly served an important role for yeah. you in a place where you didn't feel great at school. Like they gave you an outlet, but yeah, it was self-generated. Yeah. In my case, though, I didn't have parents saying you have to do you this or the other. I mean, I right. grew up in a very education-focused. family, but the swimming was my thing. It wasn't like my parents were driving that. Yeah. Like I, that was my refuge and it was completely self-driven. You know, like this, I told them, this is what I want to do. And Mm -hmm. they, you know, were supported me in that, but it was never, I never felt pressure from them. Mm -hmm. 
to pursue that. But yeah, I think, you know, look, the world has become much more competitive academically and athletically for these young kids. The amount of pressure that they're shouldering is is tremendous and it's fomented by social media where they're all, can you imagine like being in junior high and like being able to pull up an app and see what all your friends are doing? Like, you know, oh, they told you they were doing this and now you see them, you know, they lied to you and they're all together at this. It's like, it's the psychological downstream impacts of that. I really don't think we're in a place to fully appreciate yet. And it's huge. You know, as a father of, of two young girls, like a 15 year old daughter, like I see it, you know, I see it in a very visceral way. And, uh, you know, I think, I mean, I don't know what you're driving at with this question. Is the question really like, how do you parent children who are under all of this pressure or not participate in that culture of pressure? That the getting to that moment of finding who you are, like you talk a lot mm-hmm. about the fully integrated kind of person, right? Like how do you get to that sooner so that you yeah. can make those decisions as a kid and as a parent, help your kid find their path so that they aren't forced down. A, right. Cause maybe you're not the academic kid, but you are exceptional right. at something else. And society has a way of pushing you down a certain path right could lead to that rebellion well there's two things so i mean first of all as you know the adults in order to kind of discover that within ourselves it's an inside job i mean that's how i did it through 12 step and therapy and meditation and mindfulness and athletics and solitude and journaling like all of these endeavors intended to really kind of connect with myself in a way that you know, I never was taught as a young person. And it's a very slow, you know, inelegant journey that took me decades that, and it continues to this day. In terms of parenting, um, I think that our job is to help guide our children in their own journey of self-discovery, to pay attention to what they gravitate towards and to support that. So, expose them to as many things as possible, see what they naturally, you know, find joy in. be open and discourse, you know, have an open discourse with them about what they want to express and experience. I think the more things you, you expose them to, you create more variety rather than like it's a baseball and that's all it's going to be because that's the only thing going on in your town. Your job is to find ways to broaden that aperture and then when you notice like, oh, wow, like what do they do when no one's telling them what to do? What are they naturally moving towards? Like, oh, that's interesting. Like they're, that kid's always drawing. Like you just, right. if you, if there's a pen around and a piece of paper, like check it out. Like he's drawing, like, hmm, well, maybe we can, hey, do you want to go to art camp or do you want to, you know, like fill that gap, fan those flames mm-hmm. without putting pressure on them. Like they have to do anything. And if they say after a month, like, yeah, I'm not interested in that anymore. That's cool. But balancing that with the importance of making sure that they understand the value of discipline and hard work and all of that. It's a dance. It's not an easy thing, you know. And I think, you know, myself, the challenge is as somebody who's kind of, you know, had this journey and then talks about it on a podcast and writes books about it. I need to be able to make sure that I'm supporting that in my children. Right. So like we were saying before the podcast, I've got a daughter who who decided she wanted to go to art school. She's a visual artist. She's been painting since she was a little kid. You know, as soon as she was doing that, the drawing, like my wife went out and got her massive canvases and paints and let her paint the walls in her bedroom and let her go crazy. And it wasn't easy, but, and then she abandoned it. She's like, I don't want to do that anymore. And then two years ago, she came back to it on her own. And then she's like, I want to go to art school. And she spent a year on her own developing a portfolio to get into this performing arts high school. We got her a mentor, like a young RISD grad who was a painter who could help her. And she got in like, it's crazy, but this school is like downtown. It's like two hour drive from our house. So I can't be somebody who has a podcast and talks about like, you know, finding, you know, trying to express your best self and chase your dreams. If I'm not going to help my daughter do that. So we had to like, rent an apartment downtown. And it's like been challenging for our family to live in two different places to support our daughter in the pursuit of her dream. So that'd be a very extreme example of doing that. But but it didn't happen because we told her like, hey, you're an artist, like you should do more of this. It's like we allowed her her process. And when the moment where she's like, 
we could tell like she needed a little support or help, we would fill that vacuum and, and be there for her. And that leads pretty well into the mind side. And the, I think the finding balance, like you just gave a, uh-huh. like an extreme example, but you've got your athletic pursuits, you've got a family, mm-hmm. you've got now a spread out family and a real you know, business going with your podcast that I'm sure even as fun as it is, takes a, a lot of mental focus to be able to do it at the, at the scale you're at. So yeah, how, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you're tested <laughs> yeah. every day on. I'm not a balanced person, <laughs> you know, and I used to feel really guilty and ashamed of that because right. everybody's telling you you should live a balanced life and eat a balanced diet and like nothing. But I started to think like, well, nothing I've ever done that I'm proud of was the result of like pursuing balance. Mm. It was always the result of allowing myself to be out of balance for the sake of, you know, trying to do something that was difficult to do. Uh, And so I've let go of all of that guilt and shame. And I had, you know, this sports psychologist, high performance sports psychologist on my podcast called Michael Gervais. He's an amazing guy. And he helped me get to the other side of that. And what he said was something along the lines of like, forget about, balance and focus on being present, you know, and that's been a great source of relief for me. So I vacillate between being highly immersed in various things. So it's sort of like the pendulum swings. It always has to come back to center because I have every, you know, I have things that need to be in check in my life. And, you know, I have to, I want to be a great husband and a parent and this podcast thing is like a lot of time. And I also want to still be an athlete and train and, you know, many, many things that I, that I want to do. And I can't do them all in balance and do them well. So I have to, I'm somebody who has to focus on one thing. And then as soon as I'm done, move back to the next thing. And it's a constant process of trying to figure out how to do that in a way where, you know, I'm making sure that the most important things in my life are all being intended to with my best energy. And on routines that keep you in a place where you're mentally fit as you go through those levels of focus, what do you, uh, plenty, I mean, 12 step, you know, yeah. Been sober a long time. Uh, and people always ask me, they're like, Oh, you wait, you still go to AA. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm fully immersed in that community. And, um, that's what keeps me sober. And, you know, service is a big part of that. They say that, you know, your number one priority is to stay sober and help another alcoholic uh, achieve sobriety. So I do that through 12-step and also I do it, you know, online. Like I get a lot of emails and messages and way too many that I, you know, I can't respond to all of them. But if somebody is struggling with a substance issue and emails me, I always take time for that. That's like number one to keep me grounded and humble and keep me sober. And then meditation, journaling creative artist dates for myself, making sure that I take time off to just ruminate and engage in solitude or nature. Training is a big part of it. You know, the training that I do, I'm by myself. And that kind of mind-body spirit connection is really important and keeps me feeling like myself. So those are all, you know, things that are are like non-negotiable in my life. What are you training for right now? I have one thing I'm thinking about doing that I'm not ready to say yet, okay. but I will be saying <laughs> soon. But yeah, I haven't raced in two years and I haven't done it like a real, real ultra in like 10 years, but I'm looking at doing something this fall. Okay. I'm talking about soon. We'll, but, uh, we'll stay tuned. Yeah. I got my work cut out for me because yeah. I've kept <laughs> training at a very low boil for a long time. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see if I can get back into form. I've heard you talk about it on your shows, but for people who haven't journaling, talk about kind of your process, what mm-hmm. you do, what you've seen other people do. If you're, if someone's looking to yeah. pick that up. Um, this is something I talked about at length with Brian Koppelman a couple weeks ago on yeah. the podcast. Who's an amazing creative writer, creator of the show Billions. Um, and one of the things we share in common is this passion for the artist way, which is a program and a book written by Julia Cameron. Um, and it's essentially a protocol for unlocking latent creativity. And there's a core set of tools, uh, but the key one is morning pages, which is essentially journaling three pages every morning. 
free form, whatever's on your mind, no agenda, no editing, just getting whatever garbage is in your head out on the page to kind of crack the seal and loosen up that connection between creative expression and the process of getting it down on paper. Um, and there's something about that when you're doing it consistently that creates a certain fluidity um, that opens up the unconscious mind to express itself. And it's a process that I started doing back in 19, like 1998 when I was newly sober and have continued to do. And unlike Brian, I, I mean, Brian's like, I've only missed two days in 20 years. And I like, that. like, yeah, like I'm not that guy, but I'll go in and out of it. You know, when I feel blocked or when I feel like I'm not inspired, I will go back to that process and it never fails to, to work. Um, and there's a whole number of other things that are built into that like artist dates where it's like, Hey, I'm going to go do something for myself. That's creative, take photographs, go to a museum or something like that. But I found it to be extremely helpful and I'm a huge fan of it. So yeah, Julia Cameron's artist way. Everybody should check it out. And what about if for people who are getting into meditation or who have like, do you have a specific kind of philosophy that you uh, I think I think the important thing is to just do it. We want to we we uh, to use Jeff Bezos's word. We complexify yeah. it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, we want to know like what's the best kind and how long should yeah. it be. We'll ask all these questions, and then day goes by, and another day goes by, and you're not actually it. doing it. It can be as simple as sitting by yourself and drawing your attention to the breath. You know, pay attention to how the breath yeah. feels on your on the inside of your nostrils as it goes in and out. Don't make it any more complicated than that. That's a starting place. And from there, there's a universe that can be learned in mind to get better at it. But process over perfection with that. And, you know, I would suggest anybody who's listening, there's it's never been easier to learn how to do this. There's a million apps out there from Headspace to Calm. You know, Sam Harris is waking up. It's great. Like these are all amazing tools that are available on our smartphones that will take you step by step through this process of learning how to meditate. And it's been a complete game changer for me. And uh, it's like a superpower when you're doing it regularly. Yeah. I stumbled into Headspace right after it came out. And I had been reading, there was like that five-year period where people would start writing about meditation, uh -huh. but it, it was all like, there were no apps yet. And yeah. the only way to do it was to go to like a $6,000 course right. at night. I didn't have time. Um, this app came and I did it every day for yeah. a year and it was it's amazing, life-changing. Sleep for you. Mm. That's another one that feels like a superpower if you do it well, Yeah, at least for me. I'm not good on no sleep, but... Um, I'm terrible on no sleep. I'm yeah. terrible on less than eight hours of sleep. Yeah. It's funny, and it's an ongoing struggle and a challenge for me. Two nights ago, I had an amazing night of sleep, and I just felt bulletproof all day. And then last night, there's a weird thing, like when there's a full moon, I never mm. sleep well. Never. Do you still sleep in a tent? When I'm at home in Calabasas, yes, okay. I sleep in a tent. Um, and that began... I get a lot of people make fun of me. <laughs> I live in a really nice house and I sleep outside in a tent and people think like, you know, my wife kicked me out of the bedroom or something like that. Yeah. But the truth is, um, I was going to ask if your wife joins the tent. No, she's like, you can go out of <laughs> the tent. That's cool. Tent. But like you're on your own, but there's something about that outdoor air and being essentially out in nature for lack of a better word that really enhances the, the character and the quality of my sleep. I sleep more deeply. So I've been doing that for like two years and it's made a huge impact on the quality of my sleep. I also started using this thing called a gravity blanket. Do you know about this? No. Oh, these are amazing. You got to get one. As the story goes, from what I understand, I may be wrong, um, but these blankets, they're like weighted blankets that have like pellets in the little patchworks in them that make them very heavy. And they were developed as a therapy for autistic children because autistic children i don't know if you've ever seen that like sometimes they just don't feel, they need to feel grounded and you'll put they'll you'll see autistic kids with ankle weights on and that it just calms them down and there's something about this heavy blanket sort of like 
when you go to the dentist and you're getting an x-ray and you have that heavy like lead blanket on top of you, you know, that pressure that you feel that makes somebody just feel like, okay. And all I can tell you is that when I put that blanket on at night, it was like my sympathetic nervous system finally went, you can relax. Mm. I'm like, I, I've been sleeping amazing with it. So that's been an incredible discovery. Do you mattress in the tent? I do. Yeah, yeah. I have a little bit. Yeah, it's not, I'm not sleeping not on sleeping the ground. On the floor. No, 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 no. <laughs> and look, I live in Los Angeles. It's right. not like yeah, I don't no. live in Minnesota. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it, it's in the 30s. Like I slept, I never didn't sleep in the tent because it was too cold. And it was high 20s at a point. Like I come out and there's frost everywhere. Like, you know, it's not 18 degrees or, you know, below zero or anything like that. But it, it's not like it's 80 either. But yeah, sleep is non-negotiable with me, super duper important. And uh, I really try to structure my life to ensure that nothing interferes with that. And I'm not perfect. Like they'll be like, oh, I got to be in town and this thing, I don't get home until 11. But in general, like I like to be in bed at nine and I never set an alarm. I usually get up like, you know, about six o'clock or something like that. Mm -hmm. What about when you've been at like the peak of your training and kind of preventing injuries? You know, what have you turned to? Like, do you have yoga and stretching mm -hmm. or different? I'm a big proponent of both of those. Yeah. Um, and I don't do, I'll be the first to admit that I don't right. do them enough. And yeah. at 52, I, you know, I need to do more of that. Like a lot of the stuff that I used to be able to get away with, I can't get away with anymore. And yeah. I, I get, you know, my lower back gets compressed and I've got some sciatic nerve things. Like I have things that need that kind of attendance. I've never had a massive injury though, or like, a, you know, I've never blown my knee out or anything like that. And I attribute that in large part to working with a coach, you know, rather than just going out and saying, Oh, I'm going to do this crazy race. I'm just going to train how I feel. I could not have done any of accomplished any of the things I have in the world of ultra endurance without the tutelage of Chris Howell, who's guided me every step of the way. And one of the things that he's fantastic at is, is really making sure that you're not incurring a load that you're not ready for specifically. And, expressly with respect to running. Like I've always been super cautious about not um, overdoing my run volume. Even when I was at my peak, like training 25 hours a week, getting ready for Ultraman, I never ran two days in a row, you know, mm -hmm. like making sure that um, I was switching up between workouts to, uh, you know, allow the body to repair itself. And I think a lot of the injuries that you see uh, with runners and multi-sport athletes is because they're not working with somebody to bounce ideas off of. And what happens is you develop a certain level of fitness, like your lungs and your heart will develop more quickly than, than uh, the ligaments and the tendons and the joints, which need to develop the ability to bear that kind of load over a gradual period of time. And so when you feel fit, you go out and you do too much, then you're injured. So you've been working with Chris that. all along? Yeah, since like 2007. Okay. Yeah. What a... Uh what's that relationship look like? Like what's the week um, to week or? Well, we'll discuss what are the goals for the season and what are the races that you want to do and what's the priority. Then we'll look at my schedule like, oh, okay, this is going to be, you've got these months where it's wide open. Here's where you're going to be traveling all the time. He's not like, well, you got to cancel all that because if you want to do this, it's like, no, this is your life. Your life is complicated. It's not like it was in 2008. We'll just work with it the best we can. So it's about communication and collaboration. And then he will help come up with the program. But he usually only sends me workouts a week in advance or maybe two weeks in advance. And then I'll do the workouts. They upload to Training Peaks. He can see them. And then we make tweaks and adjustments as we go. And then you know, life will intervene. And you know, those work, you know, like there'll be a week where like a bunch of workouts didn't get done the way that they were supposed to, and we'll have to adjust and you know, it's just a constant conversation. So the like rich roll enterprises, the rich roll, you know, the, what you've done with your business, curious, like where it kind of goes from here, what parts to your point, like really motivate and excite you. You were really early on the podcast side. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say that, that nothing that I'm doing now is because I, visioned it or like yeah. wrote on a, you know, these are my goals. And, you know, in five years, I'm going to be doing this. Like, I just don't function that way. I really come from a more guttural intuitive space. 
yeah, I started this podcast before it was cool to have a podcast. I mean, nobody was really, you know, there were, there were some good shows, but it wasn't like a thing, you know, to have a podcast. It was not cool to have a podcast yeah. when I started. And it's been amazing to see the growth of this medium and so many people discovering it and falling in love with it the way that I did way back when you had to like download it from iTunes on your desktop and then bounce it to your iPod. It was like a whole thing. Just that you had to really be intentional to listen to a podcast. And now it's seamless. It's great. We're seeing so many amazing creators creating cool things. Um, and I'm proud to be part of that community. In terms of where I see all of this going, I just get up every day just so grateful to be able to do what I get to do. It's not like I'm doing this so that I can then have a TV show or documentary. What I, you know, I don't think in those terms. Mm -hmm. I really just think about how can I be more impactful in the messaging that I'm doing, whether it's a podcast, a book blog post, whatever it is. Those are just different platforms and distribution methods for trying to put a healthy message out there to catalyze people to be more self-actualized in their life. And if you know I died tomorrow and this was it, I'm good. I don't get up every day saying, I need a million more followers. Like That's not what drives me. What's more important to me is trying to be better at provoking real, sustainable, long-term change in people and the people that are always already you know, on board with what I'm doing. Like, how can I better serve those that are already like on my frequency? And balancing kind of the creative side of this and, you know, coming up with ideas and interviewing and the business side of it, how do you, how do you kind of approach those two pieces? Mm -hmm. I've always been a very... DIY person and a bit of a control freak. You know, I want to control every aspect of what I'm doing and my name is on it. So right. in part, that's, that's natural, I think. And maybe that comes from my swimming background where it's just me and myself. And, you know, the result that you get is a one-to-one -one ratio of the work that you put in yourself. And I think that I was able to kind of take what I have and get it to a certain place with that mentality. But what I've realized in the last year or so is that I need to grow and let go a little bit if I want to continue to scale what I'm doing. So I've hired a bunch of people. I have a team now. I have you know, an audio engineer. I've got a video team and I've got DK who you met and mm -hmm. I have a business partner and I have my wife who's my you know, big collaborative partner. So there's a lot of people and personalities involved in what I do now. And that's been challenging because I've had to let like maybe something doesn't go exactly the way that I would have done it. And I have to be okay with that because I need to free my time up to focus on things that really move the needle to engage in the activities that only I can do and let other people do things that maybe I might do a little bit differently, but it's okay. You know? Yeah. So that's been an uncomfortable growth curve for me because as I get busier trying to carve out that solitude that's required for the deep thinking and what the next project is like in order to get clarity, I need to free up time and space to be able to trust my intuition and my instincts. Otherwise you're just busy. And then you wake up five years from now and you're kind of doing the same thing you were doing and you're in the same place. And that's not where I want to end up. Awesome. I'm 41. I'm dealing escape from Alcatraz. Oh, cool. This, uh, this awesome. Spring is that's my great. List. Very uh, cool. That'll be exciting. A that's a hard, it's a hard, hard course. Yeah. I've done it as a relay. Uh -huh. <laughs> I just haven't done the swim. Yeah. I've done that swim. Advice? I've got three months. Yeah. I've done the to, swim. To go. I mean, <laughs> well, a couple of things. First of all, um, there's comfort in numbers. So as freaky as it is to get dropped off in the bay, there's so many people around you. So you're going to, there's no real danger, yeah. but it is freaky. Like you'll be halfway through the swim and you just pause and kind of look around and you're like, I'm in the middle of a shipping channel. Like, it's not that long of a swim, but it is mentally challenging because it is kind of creepy to be way out in the middle of the bay and it's cold, right? Um, so I think the thing is to, to just stay calm is super important, especially if it's choppy. And if they're doing it, I'm sure they are the way they've always done it. There's a brief period of time in between like the slack and the ebb of the, the tide, right? So the faster you go, the calmer the water is, but the slower you are, then, the, then it starts to take you, you know, back out towards the bridge. 
there's always those stories of people that end up like getting washed up by Safeway. Is, there st- is that Safeway still, still there? there? Yeah. So uh, the most popular yeah, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think just being calm is the most important thing. People get freaked out. Yeah. They get freaked out in general. People who aren't swimmers naturally or didn't grow up swimming, the swim part of a triathlon when there's open water, especially in in like saltwater ocean, you know, where there's a lot of chop and stuff like that. It's intimidating, you know, and when there's that many people, someone kicks you, it's very easy to get like agitated. Mm-hmm. So it's just about like, you know, meditation, like just, it's okay. Just calm down. Like just, you know, just another stroke, another stroke and, you know, follow the, the feet of the person in front of you and like, you'll be fine. You don't have to blast the swim. You know, it's a long race. So just, you know, stay within your, you know, keep your wits about you and, and you'll be just fine. And go down to Ocean, Ocean Park and like go, you know, go swim in that little, you know, they have it roped off down there and you can go practice. And so you're, it's not like a, a foreign thing. Like you'll be used to it. All right. Words of wisdom. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. That's cool. I've Thank you. Really, really enjoyed this. Yeah, my pleasure. All good right. talking to you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Common Threads. If you liked the show, please tell your friends and followers on social media and encourage them to tune in. You can also leave a rating or review to help new listeners discover the show on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you're listening on. Or send me feedback directly on Twitter at David underscore Swain. And then head over to join our new platform for athletes at theprokit.com.